there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from the East Legand section of Accra. I'm so happy to be doing a live in-person interview after so many, you know, they come as they come, I'll say that. But it's a wonderful, beautiful, sunny day in East Legand. I didn't have much traffic getting here. That's always a blessing. And so let's get right into the guest for today. He is a human rights leader, researcher, activist, and development communications practitioner with two decades of experience working with national and international development in human rights organizations in Africa and the United Kingdom. He is the director of the Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund based in Accra, Ghana. Prior to joining ATJLF, he worked at Amnesty International Secretariat in London as Deputy Director of Global Issues and as Acting Head of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. He also has served as Interim Country Director for Amnesty International Nigeria and as West Africa Researcher. Both, so that's also at Amnesty International. There's so much. <laughs> He's held posts with Oxfam, Great Britain, and Sierra Leone, and the UK and with Concern Worldwide in Sierra Leone. He's written several articles and reports on human rights and social justice issues for high-profile African and European publications and institutions, and so much more. He's a, He serves as a board chair, he's a Rotarian, serves as a board chair and member of the board of trustees of several UK-based and Sierra Leonean charities and NGOs, and he's a member of the Merton Center for Independent Living organization run by and for deaf and disabled people in the UK. Mr. Mehmed Kamara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Wonderful. So let's let's just jump right in. Let's get started. We, we know we're in Accra, but I always have to ask the question, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So I'm a Sierra Leonean. I come from Freetown, Sierra Leone, and if you haven't been to Freetown yet or Sierra Leone, I will strongly encourage and advise you to go there and visit the country. I'm currently based here in Ghana, in Accra. I've been here for three years actually now, and I moved to Accra from London, and I am currently leading, as you mentioned in your introductions, I'm currently leading a transitional justice grant-making organization. We work here in Accra, but cover West Africa. We cover seven countries in West Africa, and we also work with the African Union Commission, different organs in the African Union Commission to, to look at transitional justice issues across the continent. Yeah, I think that's it. I started my career as a journalist, so I used to be on the other side of the mic, and I was a broadcast journalist. I moved from being a journalist to being a development practitioner and then human rights researcher and now transitional justice grant maker. Would you say that your craft is people? I think so. I think working with and for people is, is my calling. Okay. It's my area. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Okay, so you did a lot of... Um, studying work in the UK and you're here in Ghana. So what is the inspiration? Like what what exactly just moved you, first of all, to be a broadcast journalist, because that's one thing. And then, you know, as you were transitioning, what were the key pivot points that 
that moved you into different segments of the work that you've done? <laughs> I'll say the need to survive, the need to make change, the need to uh, make some difference in my society, involving the reasons for my different journeys into different sectors. So I started the whole foray into journalism or into public communication, actually, perhaps I could say public communication, from my primary school. So during my primary school days, I went to school in, uh, in the eastern province of Sierra Leone, a, a district called Kenema. And, uh, and I went to a school called St. Charles Loanga Primary School. It's a Catholic school. And during school days, we need to take an exam to be the prefect or the head boy or the senior prefect of the school. This is a primary school. So I was uh, made a head boy for my school. And during the, the process, you know, during assemblies, we need to address fellow uh, pupils. And uh, we got new teachers who came. They were teaching assistants, actually, from teaching colleges. And they wanted to introduce some new things to the school. And they introduced the afternoon news session. And then, so because of my position as head boy and, and also the teacher who introduced it was one of my favorite teachers. I still remember his name, Mr. Musa. And he then uh, wrote the first set of news about what was happening in the district. And then just a few minutes to the assembly, he then gave me the piece of paper and said, you have to read this news to the school. So this is part of a new initiative we're doing now to let people know what is happening in their surroundings. Yeah. So that's when I started reading the news, okay. pretty much okay. in front of my uh, fellow pupils in the, in the primary school. I was in class six, uh, primary six. And that interest stayed because it was quite an experience. Everybody was quite excited. And we used to do that three days in a week because the teachers have to put the news together. And in those days, they, need to, they, they used to write the news and yes. we would just read it. And it, it kind of developed into a situation where we will then jointly write the news and then I will read it. And then we added another um, co-news reader. Uh, by the other time, we had refugees from Liberia. They had fled the war in Liberia. They had joined the school. So we had a Liberian um, people who together, we both read the news in, the, uh, in front of the, the school assembly. Moved to Freetown again, fled the war in Kenema, moved to Freetown, which is the capital, and then went to St. Edward's Secondary School. And when we were at St. Edward's Secondary School, there was a St. Edward's newsletter. The St. Edward's newsletter was also a student-led publication from the English department. So the English department was introducing or encouraging students to write. Mm -hmm. And I also loved poetry. I used to love poetry and literature, and then I would write poems for other established publications. So they were already uh, publishing some of my stuff. And so when the St. Edward's newsletter started, I was involved again. And we started uh, reading the news again in front of my co-students, my colleague students. Moved to, so after, before even before going to college, I started working oh, okay. as a journalist. Sure. So because of the interest that already de developed, when we sat to the entrance exams for university, there was a gap. And during that gap, I wanted to do something useful. There was a call for volunteer reporters at the Sierra Leone Broadcasting Service at the time. It's now Sierra Leone Broadcasting Corporation. This is a state broadcaster. Went, took the exam, passed, and started working as a journalist. Uh, so yeah, so that's... Um, so, but even while I was working, I 
the, my interests, uh, the stories were all social justice issues. Mm. So even though I was in a, in a particular sector, which is the media and journalism sector, I was still doing work. I was also doing work in the human rights and social justice sector. So programs that I worked on were mostly social justice issues, human rights issues. Yeah, and then I left and then went into an NGO, um, started working with the NGO called Campaign for Good Governance and uh, did some work there, helped them again, because they, they, they were also doing a newsletter. So I did some, some work with the, the newsletter for the organization. So my, it, it, was, it, it felt like a different path, but it was kind of going in parallel. Mm-hmm. My journalism and my social justice um, um, work. Yeah. The social justice themes that you started to gravitate towards, how do you think living in seeing the refugees and seeing crisis and wars influence that? And how was it living as a young person and growing into a young adult in, in that type of climate? It was, it was quite an experience. It was different because I experienced the war. I experienced the full 10 year of war in Sierra Leone. I was displaced. I was an internally displaced person in Sierra Leone. Our houses were burned. My father was shot um, by a child soldier. And I experienced the war not just in one part of the country, in multiple parts of the country, because wherever we move, the world was, was following. Yeah. Uh, so all of those experiences kind of contributed yeah. to where I come, I'm currently um, at. And I also saw poverty firsthand. I, I saw and experienced poverty firsthand not just because of the war, but also because I grew up in a family where where my parents had this very strong view about social justice, but also about integrity and not getting involved in corruption. And so there were a number of times when the the punishment that my dad received for not being involved in in corruption was not to be promoted in the civil service. So that meant the longer he spent in one position and the less likely for his salary to be increased and the less likely for him to be able to provide this kind of privileged um, opportunities that, you know, ordinary children, you know, will, will get. And, and I also come from a very extended family, apart from my own immediate siblings. As an African, you have lots of cousins who are your brothers and sisters. So we grew up with that. We grew up. I grew up seeing deprivation. I grew up seeing exclusion. And then I also experienced you know, disparity in terms of not just the social order and class, but also disparity in terms of opportunities. And uh, I have Arps palsy. Arps palsy is, is a form of disability. So I grew up also as a disabled young person. And that that kind of creates an intersectional experience um, for me growing up. So by, like I said earlier, getting into the human rights and social justice sector, it isn't just because I was a bystander watching from the outside. It's because I grew up experiencing exclusion, experiencing marginalization, experiencing social inequalities that, that need to be corrected. And that, that that people need to, a society generally, need to address. And I, I won't wait for society to do that. I didn't want to wait for society to do that for me. I want to do it for myself. And which is why I got into not just 
um, bringing out some of these issues in the in a form of journalism, but also holding people accountable in the form of human rights activism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to take on, you know, as a young person, and and so it has brought you from continent back to continent. So when did you decide to pursue a career outside of journalism and then into what the, I guess, the, the practice of this justice and social justice movement? So I, I, I would say there was not like a particular period when I went home and said, okay, I need to stop doing journalism and go straight into this. It kind of happened organically. But even during my school days, I was already involved in some form of activism and, and, and advocacy. I, I will recall a situation where at St. Edward Secondary School, we protested for against the school administration for the lack of a, a school brass band, which we were paying for. <laughs> so our Thanksgiving service was coming up, yeah. and every academic year, as part of the school charges, our parents were asked to pay for the school brass band as part of extra charges. So we would pay, and we all know that we were paying, but the, the, the school was not providing the service for which we were paying. So I was a member of the Prefectural Council, and I was also a member of the Literary and Debating Society. So what we did was, we, we, it was also our final year. We thought, okay, well, there's nothing to lose, right? Sure. We, can, <laughs> we, can, we can just try and ruffle some feathers and, and you know, challenge the status quo. Yeah. Why should we be paying for something that we're not getting? Exactly. So we mobilized as prefects, and then we said, we need to go and make a representation to the school administration, to the principal. We went, I was involved, I think it was myself and, and uh, about six or seven other people. We're all prefects because we decided to do it as, um, as prefects other than, rather than getting all that ordinary right. students who might, uh, there's a higher risk of them being punished than sure. it, it is for us. So, so we went and spoke to the principal. The principal reacted really angrily and said, um, but during our presentation, we said, if they don't produce the ban, we will, we will, uh, will not join the procession, the Thanksgiving procession. And he was quite angry and threatened us. So we came back and reported to uh, the General uh, Prefect Council and the Debating Society. And the decision was made for us to write formally and threaten our strike action. So we did. <laughs> we did, and we were then we were then summoned by the principal again and told us that every, if anybody goes out to the streets and protests, they will be rusticated, they will be expelled from the school. Well, that's what we did exactly. We went yeah. and protested. Sure. And uh, we rang the bell, and not during a break, during the class time, uh -huh. that's when we, we rang the bell, the school bell, and everybody came out. And teachers were all worried, like, what is going on? Everybody came out, and then we, we addressed the assembly. They said, okay, this is what is happening, and we're paying for this. You know, students, they like this kind of thing. Yes. One, they like the school to end early <laughs> and they want to be reminded of their rights. Right. So we then told them that everybody should go home and the teachers were furious and started beating. So the beating led to people running riot. Oh, and so they had to call the police. It's always... A reaction. Yes. yes. It's always the reaction from the authorities. Yes. Because it could have actually been a peaceful yes. um, stay at home or you know, people just leaving school early. Yes. But because the, the, the teachers reacted, because they wanted to stop the assembly. So they came and they started really like whipping prefects and non-prefects, everybody, and we were just running all over the place. 
So that became, that actually made it to the news. <laughs> and, uh, and because he made it to the news, he attracted attention of those who actually need to know the school's board intervened. Yeah. And uh, we got our ban for okay. the first Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, so that, that actually also uh, made me realize, actually, if you speak out, you speak up and for things that you believe in and that are right, you actually get it. Yeah. You just need to know when to do it and how to do it. So, so that was uh, for me. But prior to that, actually, that was just one of the kind of uh, radical approach to uh, activism. In my primary school, days, I was a member of the Pan-African Union. I joined the Pan-African Union at a very early age, at 11. Okay. And at age 11, I was made district chair of the Pan-African Union Children's Wing in Kenema. And this was when... Um, campaigning against apartheid was really up there and uh, we had a lot of uh, campaign. There was a, an organization called National Social Mobilization for um, NASMOS. It's called NASMOS, National Social Mobilization Movement. Uh, it was kind of a socialist movement and they had a lot of revolutionaries, Pan-Africanists. So I was co-opted, I was recruited, inducted into the Pan-African movement, in the Pan-Africanist movement. And I was then introduced into Pan-Africanism, into human rights activism, into social justice, and into Rastafarianism as well, because of the collection of uh, people who were part of those movements. And um, so I would actually credit that as the beginning of my journey into human rights activism at at age 11. So uh, every year during that time, they would... Uh, as, as a form of solidarity to the South African struggle against apartheid, some countries in Africa will give the, you know, the, the Soweto massacre, which was June 16, which happened in June 16, 1976. Mm-hmm. They will give that day to young people, and it, which is now called the Day of the African Child. Ah, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so they celebrate to celebrate that day. You know, that's, that was the, the, the kind of the genesis of the celebration of that day. Although I see now it's it's highly commercialized, and uh, <laughs> but the, the actual, as far as I'm concerned, the actual origins was to commemorate and reflect on the, the sacrifices made by those students, those students in the Soweto township who protested against apartheid. And so on this day in the 90s, I think 1994, I was made minister for one day. Oh, in my country, yes, okay. as part of the, at the time the military um, regime was in power, the National Provisional Ruling Council, NPRC, was the, the government in power. It was a military regime. And because of my links with the Pan-Africanists and the, the and Rastafarians and the socialist movements who were more like allies to the revolutionary movements at the time, I was able to have these connections with adults with ah, people. So sure. when they asked for people to recommend, when they asked schools to recommend pupils, my name, of course, oh, because, I, yes, my name came up. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so I was made minister yeah. <laughs> for one day. Yeah. And on that day, I opened a market that had been closed by the previous government. The civilian government that had been overthrown by the military had closed the markets because these women protested against that government for the rising food prices, rising cost of living. And so the government then sent the police, the paramilitary wing of the police, who opened fire, shut the place down, burnt the market and closed it. So that was the first time in years that the market was reopened. I opened the market for the women. Yeah, so it was, it was quite an experience for me as well. Yeah. And 
I always tell people that was actually my first, I could, I could credit that as my first contribution or demonstration of allyship to women's empowerment and, and women's you know, agency and voice. Uh, so that was at age 11. And so going back to your question, <laughs> the question about what led me to, to choose, I just wanted to give you those background that it had already, it was already yes, in, in the making, it was already happening and, and from at an early stage. So when I decided to move, I didn't like sit down and say, okay, next year I'm going to leave journalism, I'm going to go into human rights. So I was already working in um, the SLBS because it was a government station, it was slow, and then I, I also left to go and study. So I left the station to go and to do my, master, my undergrad, and I went to study mass communications. So while studying mass communications, I joined the human rights clinic of Frobe College. So I went to Frobe College, which is the University of Sierra Leone. And during my time, actually even prior to my time also, in two or three years prior, they had established the human rights clinic, which was a student-led entity to educate people both on and off campus about human rights. So I joined the human rights clinic, became a project leader, became a secretary, and became the first non-lawyer to head the clinic because it was mostly dominated by lawyers who were reading human rights law and stuff. And I was in mass communication reading journalism and mass communication. So, but the interest developed. I then created a program on the first student-led station on campus, which focused on human rights. It was called Focus on Human Rights. <laughs> Very creative, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, so the, like I said, the journey was kind of parallel. I was doing it, you know, um, concurrently. I didn't like segue completely. I was doing my journalism and doing my human rights, but promoting using communications to advance human rights causes. When I stopped, eventually, um, I moved to Campaign for Good Governance. I worked at Campaign for Governance as a governance and human rights assistant, did some monitoring of human rights situations, and then while there, I then moved into development. Mm-hmm. That's when, and by then, I think it was more the money. Mm-hmm. I needed, you know, the money, they needed money, needed to, the salary needs to come. And, yeah. Yeah. and uh, so I moved, I applied for a job at Oxfam, Oxfam GB in Sierra Leone as a governance and program assistant. Worked on two very uh, exciting projects. One was a project called Promoting a Culture of Equal Representation, PESA, which was to work with women to get into elective positions in mm-hmm. government. Because at the time, the government's at the, at the time, was I also introduced a local government act, which means that local government authorities were no longer going to be appointed, but they're going to be elected. And we want to ensure that women at the local level be part of those leadership um, processes to, to change the direction of their communities. So I worked on that. Oxfam was supporting the process, supporting an, an organization, a women-led organization called 5050, and the organization that I was working with, which was CGG. So CGG was a campaign for good governance. I was there before I left. I came to Oxfam. So when I came, Oxfam was still working with them. So yeah, I, I think the one, perhaps one of the reasons why I left journalism, especially in the state broadcaster, was the, the level of stifling that, that I experienced. You know, I know that I was involved in one program that was actually taken off air because it was questioning the government of the day. And because it's the state's broadcaster, they expect the state broadcaster to be the propaganda mouthpiece, which is what it always is anyway. It was it used to be. But we wanted to have a change. We wanted to change, 
the whole approach and change the the, the, the ways of working yeah. for the station because it was a public broadcaster. It should not be the government of the day's mouthpiece. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So because of that and because it, it was it was just kind of a monotonous process. Sure. You do the same thing in and out. And uh, uh, so yeah, so that's also another reason why I left. And the development field was the most. Uh, it seems like a, a natural yeah, kind of shit. Logical yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, very interesting. So now I ask this question: Why the where? Because we're now in Accra. So this is so you started your development career in Sierra Leone, yes. and years later you're now in Accra. So why the where? How did you come to be living, working, and playing mm-hmm. where you are? Mm-hmm. So I moved to Ghana uh, March 2019. And uh, I came to lead and head the ATJLF. ATJLF is the Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund. The fund had been established and uh, set up by two foundations, MacArthur Foundation and uh, another foundation that is, is uncomfortable with their name being mentioned publicly, but I think they are working on their own their, their communications guidelines as we speak. So... This fund was set up to address transitional justice issues in Africa, beginning with West Africa. I, at the time, was working at Amnesty International, and I was acting head of the Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Team, having done work in Nigeria and in other parts of Africa, but also in Europe. So I saw the adverts, had a conversation about it, and then applied for the role, and a number of reasons really made me um, quite interested in the role. One of which is the, my personal experience with war. I'm a war survivor and I'm a conflict survivor. I'd seen the effects of conflicts you know, directly, not, not as, a, as a bystander, but as a direct witness uh, of, of conflict. So when I read the job description and I saw what the, the organization, because at the time it wasn't even an organization, it was a project. It was a project and uh, with a very a specific time frame to come and support grassroots initiatives to advance transitional justice. Mm-hmm. You know, having gone through the war in Sierra Leone, I, even in my days at, as a journalist, I worked with the, the special courts, I worked with the TRC, which is a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I saw how these mechanisms, you know, these are all transitional justice mechanisms, how they could contribute to uh, building peace and guaranteeing non recurrence. So, I got the offer and started working as, as the head of Transition Justice Legacy Fund in Ghana. So that's what brought me here. The fund, if you want to know, I hope I'm not preempting already your question, but I'm, I'm quite excited to talk about my fund. Yes, please. <laughs> so the ATGLF was set up specifically to change the narrative around transitional justice, to ensure that what people are used to hearing about transitional justice is demystified, is transformed, and we, we, we bring in uh, an approach to dealing with African problems in a way that is Afrocentric. So when the fund was created in 2018, the decision was made to just focus on locally led and contextually relevant transitional justice efforts. So we don't give money to governments. So we give grants, small grants, and, but we don't give that, those um, grants to governments. We give them to civil society organizations or survival-led groups that are operating in these countries, 
countries that have emerged from conflict or dictatorship, oppressive dictatorships, and support these, these civil society groups or survival-led groups to work with governments to advance transitional justice issues. Now, perhaps your listeners might want to know what is transitional justice. Transitional justice are the mechanisms and measures that governments, in collaboration and support with and with support from civil society organizations, undertake to deal with the wrongs of the past. They are the measures that um, states undertake or, or put in place to ensure that one, after societies, have, the rights of um, people have been seriously violated in societies, those people whose rights have been violated receive some kind of remedy. They are the measures you take to repair the wounds of society, to strengthen institutions that have been broken as a result of conflict or oppressive dictatorships, to build those institutions so that they guarantee non-recurrence. They are the measures that governments in collaboration with civil society take to provide what we call reparation, you know, just to, uh, the issue about repair is to ensure that one, victims receive remedy, and the remedy could be both judicial as well as non-judicial. So people experience, for example, a lot of trauma as a result of conflict. And for you to heal, for society to heal, you have to de-traumatize. So reparation measures and mechanisms and that government and civil society undertake to deal with the psychosocial trauma of victims of conflict is a form of uh, transitional justice. When you uh, engage with the justice sector to ensure that those who have perpetrated serious crimes against fellow countrymen and women are held to account, that is a form of justice. And that is uh, an aspect of transitional justice. So transitional justice is not just taking people to the ICC, like we have seen in other countries. It is also about engaging people locally, like what we did in Sierra Leone when the TRC did the testimony and truth collection. People come and tell their truth of what happened to them, but also what they did. So the truth-telling aspect is a form of transitional justice. So people come and, and say, well, during this period, I so-and-so did so-and-so. Another the victim on the victim side will come and say, during this period, we experience this from these people. This is what this is what this is our story. So in, in that process you help also in healing because for people for communities and societies to move on from the impact of conflict they have, there needs to be some truth telling. Truth telling then helps in reconciliation. Reconciliation is where the victims and the and the and the survivors meet with their perpetrators, where sometimes you don't even meet with them, but just have an, an agreement or come to a common ground, establish a common ground where they say, I have forgiven you. I, I have not forgotten about what you've done, but I have forgiven you and I'm ready to move on. You know, to reconcile those differences, agree on moving forward and leaving the past behind. So that is what transitional justice is. Dealing with the wrongs of the past, ensuring that those who have committed crimes are held accountable, and those who are recipients of those crimes also uh, feel that they have been listened to and their, their truth has been told and they have received some form of remedy. This could be both um, punitive or otherwise. And then and, uh, they are able to, to forgive or reconcile with the perpetrators of those crimes. And that institutions that are ought to ensure that these things, those crimes are not committed again, are actually strengthened and made independent. So these are all the various elements. And, and so the fund was set up to support this kind of initiative in Africa, beginning with seven countries in West Africa. These seven countries include Sierra Leone, my country, 
Liberia, which is a neighbor, neighboring country, Guinea, another neighboring country to Sierra Leone, Mali, which is still in conflict, Nigeria, focusing primarily on northern Nigeria, and Cote d'Ivoire, which experienced post-elections violence and conflict, and the Gambia, which is probably the odd one out in the sense that it didn't experience full-blown conflict. It experienced oppressive dictatorship for 22 years under um, President um, Jame. So, and because of that, institutions were broken and collapsed, and rights of people were seriously violated, especially women and girls who were subjected to all forms of sexual and gender-based violence. So we are supporting survivors in, this, in, in, this, in these countries and in these societies to not just deal with the wrongs of those pasts, to help governments and, and uh, the, the authorities in these countries to recover and rebuild and, and to but repair the wounds in the minds of people who, who suffer those harms and uh, to put in place systems that will guarantee non-recurrence. Sure, sure. That's, that is what we are doing. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Mehmed Kamara. Next week, we'll be back with another episode where Mehmed continues to tell us more about his work in transitional justice and a lot more about the person that he is and has become as a Pan-African. You can catch new episodes of the podcast each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. That's Google, that's Amazon, that is Apple Podcasts, that's Spotify, you name it, we gotcha. So as always, please like, share, subscribe, leave us a review. It helps people find this wonderful content. And don't forget to come back for part two. Until next time, bye for now.